Welcome to Descriptive, a podcast in which we find out about programmers' origin stories. This is episode 21. I will not get in the way of my project's success. Hi, I'm Henning Glattegertz, and I'm joined, as usual, by Khalil Lechelt. Hello. Hi there. And our special guest today is Steve Francia. He's empowering developers through advocacy, evangelism, and open source. He's a blogger, author, speaker, and developer, and the creator of the static website engine Hugo and the ultimate Vim distribution SPF 13, among other things. Welcome, Steve. Uh, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. Um, the ultimate Vim distribution, that's actually how I sort of stumbled across you, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, let's start at the beginning, and uh, why don't you tell us how you became interested or when you noticed that you were interested in programming, and how did you actually go about starting that? Uh, sure. So I I didn't really grow up around computers. Um, we had a, a DOS machine. Um, but, you know, and I played around with basic a little when I was a kid, but, um, it wasn't really until, until high school when, uh, we had, uh, programmable calculators. These are the TI-85, TI-83. And, uh, with these, um, I had, this is kind of my first experience with programming is I didn't like do, I, I'll start, I was rather good at math and I usually could do the, the problems in my head and it I realized that um, I didn't need to do it in my head if I could program a computer to do it for me and so I ended up writing a bunch of programs to do all of the you know not programs but just uh, little functions that did all of the calculations for me for all my homework and that was my first realization that computers could could uh, uh, make my life easier, and then it was kind of a selfish desire. Um, and because I had all of my work, I was I was able to do my work a lot faster than the other kids in class. I had a lot of free time, and so with that free time, I started programming games, um, all on my calculator, all on a number pad keyboard. Um, and I, you know, I first. Game I programmed was rock paper scissors. So you actually and, programmed it on the calculator itself. Oh yeah, yeah, that was oh, wow. the only way to do it. Okay. Uh, um, and and after that, um, rock paper scissors was a pretty simple game. Um, then I started to do blackjack, which was a little more uh, exciting, um, a little more challenging. And then the semester was over, and I realized I really wanted to use a keyboard to do this, and got started with real programming. All right. I get the reason I asked is because I had uh, one of those Texas in instruments as well, and and I guess maybe that was a later model. You could connect it to to a PC and and basically write your your code or your your program on the PC and then move it over there. But so so then um, when you say you started programming, what what was that in, and and how did that go? Um, so this is in the days before the internet. Um, so you. It was a very different time. Now, now when people want to learn programming, you download a compiler or a runtime. Uh, you do, you know, Hello World. Um, there's YouTube videos teaching you how. Uh, back then, you had to go to a, a bookstore. Um, and I, I don't feel that old, but 
it does feel like I'm talking about a completely different time. Um, like you had to go to specialty bookstores and buy books that had um, back then floppy disks, uh, which had the compilers built into them. And so the, my first experience was was doing. You know, I had I, I had my parents drag me to a store. Um, you know, put, bought a fifty dollar book, which had you know learned to program in C and and Pascal and uh, and just got started with those. Um, you know, working through the the books. You know, they they used to sell books, uh, and they still sell promises like this. You know, uh, learn C plus plus in twenty four hours. And, right. Uh, yep. You know, I I know people programming C plus plus for twenty years and still feel like they don't know it. <laughs> so yeah. But th- those were those were all I would you know kind of hobbyist things. Um, I did my first real programming language in college uh, was a programming language called Prolog. And that's a, not a very common language. Um, it's not a common first language. It's it's really an uncommon, uh, uncommon language nowadays. Although it's making a bit of a comeback. Um, I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with the language Prolog. No. I have heard it by name, but I don't have any other familiarity with it. So there's three um, there's three branches of programming languages. One's um, procedural, which is the lang- you know what most people's first languages are, and, and um, and certainly my hobby languages were. And then there's uh, functional, which is making a, a quite a big comeback right now. Um, and Scala is kind of leading that effort. Um, and, and, and it's infiltrating a lot of the pr- procedural languages anyway. JavaScript is kind of both procedural and functional. Um, and then there's logic languages. And logic languages are done very, you know, each of them are very different. The, the logic languages are unique in that you kind of define a set of rules and the the application itself, the runtime, figures out the solution to those rules. Which is kind of the inverse of, of procedural where you're the one kind of deciding how to how to solve it. Um, which is a really interesting way to start programming. Um, because it's it 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 fundamentally makes you think of of the way um, Programs are written in a very different way, um, and, and I highly recommend to anyone if they haven't, you know, if they've never used it, um, it really is a great experience. It teaches you a lot about kind of uh, programming concepts and opens your minds in, into different ways of thinking about things. So, Prolog is is that was you were introduced to that at college in in a course? Yeah, that was my first college. Oh, I actually took. I started at uh, university uh, just with one course um, when I was 16. Um, okay. And then I finished high school and then went back when I was 18. Um, uh, okay. But I took one early college cl- course in, in programming and that was and it was in Prolog. Okay, because that doesn't seem like it's the sort of typical language that, that universities seem to offer. They At least um, what I've heard is like either C, C++, or Java. That's interesting. Yeah, this was this was um, before Java was mm-hmm. a thing, but it was um, most most introductory courses were taught at the time in Pascal, um, and this was kind of a specialty course. It wasn't the one hundred and one course. It was a um, it was just kind of an extra course that you could take, and I just so happened to take it as my first one. Okay. Uh, and because I took it at 16, it was before I even got to the 101. So, so my next class, when I actually enrolled in college, 
uh, as a freshman. Uh, my whole freshman year was in Pascal. And okay. that, was the no that was the more standard uh, for first year. Back, back then, Pascal was thought of as an educational language. It was also used uh, commonly, you know, pretty commonly for, for business, but um, it was definitely more of an academic language than like C or C++, which, which you'd learn, but in later years. Okay. And um, is this, give us sort of a, a time, time frame, is this uh, late 80s, early 90s in that case? This is uh, er, uh, mid, mid 90s. Mid 90s, so, okay. Yeah, my first course was in 90, I want to say 95, and then I enrolled as a freshman in 97. Okay. Yeah, because I remember I did uh, Pascal too um, in the beginning, and then Fortran as well. So I was just sort of trying to figure out when that was. Yeah. Um, so, did you already do sort of things? I guess this is um, just the beginning of the internet, so open source isn't really a thing yet either, right? Um, that's that's correct. So I'm also kind of unique in that I I started my career young and not as a programmer. Um, I actually started my career as a, as a, a Unix systems administrator um, at one of the earliest internet providers in the New York City area. Um, and I did that uh, from, the, from 94 through <clears throat> 98. Um, and, and you could tell by the timing that, that I was in high school for that. Um, but I, I got started pretty early with Unix, uh, at least in my lifetime, pretty early. Mm -hmm. um, and Unix is interesting. Open source wasn't a thing yet. We hadn't, the term open source wasn't coined yet. But the history of Unix is pretty prevalent that in the earliest days, it had a very open mentality. A lot of people were sharing things. Um, the whole idea of, of Unix was uh, done kind of in an academic way that people were sharing what they did. And that was in the, in the earliest days. Um, pretty soon, companies started making their own versions of Unix and selling it. And so we had this interesting blend of, um, you know, the Berkeley and, and uh, BSD uh, Unixes, which were very open. Um, and then you had the proprietary ones from Sun and from Digital and from HP. And it was interesting to see how uh, the different strengths and weaknesses of, of these systems played off of each other. Um, and yeah, so open source wasn't what it is today, but there was definitely a sense of, of open versus proprietary in the Unix philosophies. Yeah. Um, and uh, is that, I assume that's when you started picking up Vim? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a regular in the Unix uh, yeah. admin's tool belt. Um, <laughs> well, it wasn't Vim yet, it was VI. Oh, VI, um, yes, yes. Yeah, Vim, I don't know if Vim was, I don't think Vim was even created yet, but if it was created, it, it certainly wasn't, um, wasn't at a place where people were using it instead of VI. Yeah. And, you know, back then, um, VI was on every system. Um, it wasn't like you could just download RPMs or things um, uh, with, you know, with the different Unixes. You really needed to use what tools they had um, because it wasn't, 
you know, it wasn't open. You had to get your packages directly from the distributors. Right. It, it was very different. Very different time. Yep. Everything came on the on the pat or stack of CDs, and you had to install that. I guess I remember that with uh, SGI boxes. That yeah. We used to have. Yep. Yeah. All right. So then, uh, so that was system administration, and then was that. Um, so there wasn't really an intent or a desire to to actually go into programming at that point. I just thought the intern. That's a good question. I don't know that it. Um, as a teenager, I had much of an intent of any kind. Um, I was just enjoying the fact that I had a job that wasn't retail, <laughs> and uh, I was able to, uh, you know, do. I felt like pretty grown up work. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah. So, the, and at college, there wasn't really anything for Unix people. Uh, all the Unix people were were, sysat, were in computer science too. So it seemed like a natural fit um, to to go into computer science um, when I got to the university. Um, and uh, I was fortunate. I went to uh, attended Brigham Young University, and uh, which is in uh, it's in Utah in the United States, and. Um, in in the New York City region where I grew up, there was a Unix users group that I'd go to, and that's what we did back then. There was only there was uh, you know there was uh, there was uh, Usenet and and if you want to do things in person, you join a Unix users group, um, and and really if you want to do anything on the internet, you needed to be part of a Unix users group. And when I got to college, um, the first week I went to the Unix users group. And everyone there was a Linux user, and uh, it turns out that the first uh, the first commercial version of Linux uh, was started by some former BYU students, some some recent BYU graduates, and that was Caldera. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and it was great. They gave us you know these expensive versions of Linux. It was uh, we came with Star Office, so I could actually use Un Linux as my primary desktop. And this is something that nobody else really had, um, was that you could actually run this, uh, you know, an open source distribution uh, and do Office work on it. Um, and the Star Office eventually became Open Office slash LibreOffice, but originally it was called Star Office. And uh, and so yeah, so I, I, uh, I didn't use Linux when I was at the the internet provider. Um, in fact, nobody would have used Linux seriously at that time. It just wasn't there yet. Um, but uh, at university, it was very much my university happened to be on the cutting edge of it, and uh, I, I became a Linux user pretty quickly um, that year. Very cool. And um, so then you you basically went went through college in in computer science. Did you did you complete that? I completed college, but not in computer science. Ah, okay. Um, my life is not a normal. <laughs> if anything, you'll you'll discover that I, I just uh, it's a series of fortunate circumstances that kind of changed direction, but overall the theme has been the same. Okay. Um, yeah. So I I actually took two years off of college to do uh, uh, service, a missionary service, in, in uh, the inner city Los Angeles. And when I got back, it was the dot-com bust. And, um, and I was taking programming classes and not loving it. 
really. Um, I discovered I was not an academic programmer at all. I really liked building things, and at that time, I, I, I was always working. I went to school and, and worked full-time the, the entire time through it, um, and I, I realized I, I was actually had built more, um, or at least I felt this way. I had worked on more projects that were uh, meaningful, that companies had used by this point um, than my professors, and clearly they knew more about computer science than I did, but I felt like at the time that I didn't have much to learn from them because I was building real stuff and they were building theory stuff. Right. Um, I don't know how accurate that statement was, but it was enough for me to change my major. Um, and so I, I ended up with a degree in philosophy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Quite a so, switch. It, it seems like it's a switch, although the logic classes were very much fundamental computer science. Um, <laughs> and that was really where I tended to gravitate towards, was more of the um, logical aspects of philosophy. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, I was surprised myself when I took my first logic class. I was like, oh, this is just like CS proofs. I've done all this. <laughs> and yeah, logic uh, came very naturally to me, um, which was nice because I didn't really like studying. So it was nice that things, some things came easy. Yeah. So then since you were working full-time, did you just stay in whatever job you were in at that time? Or did you, I mean, what did you do after college with your, with your degree? So I, when I uh, returned home uh, from my missionary work, I did a summer job um, writing, uh, writing an application for, um, for a company um, using ASP. It was horrible. And, um, and at the end of the summer, they, they said, hey, we want to hire you full-time, drop out of school, continue to build this for us. And, and I said, no, I, I want to finish school. And so they said, okay, start a company, um, and, and we'll be your, your first client. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I like that idea. <laughs> so I returned to school uh, with a LLC under my belt um, and, and started a cons- computer consulting company um, and ran it for seven years. So I ran it all the way through uh, graduation and for a couple of years after it. Um, and we did. Uh, we had our own data center. Uh, we I had about uh, the most I had was twelve employees, um, and we did work for uh, our big projects were Priceline, uh, Toyota. Um, we did work for uh, Major League Soccer, um, and then lots of work for smaller, smaller companies. And it was it was great experience. I learned a lot. I was a young kid. I I can't believe what I how bold I was to jump into it. But, um, yeah, so I did that for, um, for seven years, and, uh, and it was good. So this was um, custom, custom software development for these companies? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, what uh, kind of projects were those? I mean, um, you said Toyota was one of your co- uh, clients and Priceline? Yeah. That's so, impressive. Um, yeah, we got some. We had. We were fortunate. We found some good uh, contracts. Um, so I'll, I'll say uh, we did different work. We did a variety of work. Really, um, I don't know that we ever found our sweet spot. Um, but if it was, uh, we did one thing that I'm I'm proud of, and nobody knows about. Uh, <laughs> while I was there, so I'll, I'll actually I'll, I'll tell you the Toyota work. We built a prototype for um, a. 
a dash display, like an in-dash display that had navigation and address books and everything. And this is like 2000, I don't know, three, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, we were part of a team that did, that did the, uh, the back end uh, of this. Um, and we, we finished the job and didn't, didn't think much of it. Um, about 10 years later, uh, we, we actually, my wife and I uh, were watching TV and a commercial came on and the, the prototype, uh, something that resembled, highly resembled the prototype we built 10 years earlier, um, was what featured in, in a Lexus commercial. Um, so it, it's interesting that we, we, I thought nothing of it, you know, after. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, that, was a, that was a pretty odd job for us. Um, yeah. For... So one of the things we did, and it's and it's part of what we did at both Priceline and uh, for Major League Soccer was, uh, we built the uh, a content uh, management system uh, and e-commerce system, um, and we uh, didn't open source it, but we did open source the framework that it was based on, and that became the first object-oriented framework in PHP. Um, and I think we were a little early um, to release it. Frameworks weren't a buzzword yet. In fact, when we told people on the internet we'd written a framework, they said, what's a framework? Why would you want more than one class? <laughs> and the, the most popular site of the day was PHP classes, and it didn't have a mechanism to put anything on it that had more than one class. Um, and, you know, SourceForge was young, GitHub didn't exist yet, um, but we ended up. We were always surprised with how much adoption uh, we had, um, and even you know we stopped developing it years ago. But even as as recent as last year, we had people uh, that were using it uh, throughout the world. So, uh, what's the name of it? So the name of it was Zoop Framework, um, <sighs> and it was a recursive algorithm saying for Zoop object oriented PHP framework. Okay, and you guys got or you chose PHP because the alternative ASP was so horrible, or how did that happen? Yeah, well, there were. If you were going to build something on the web early two thousands, PHP was by and far your best bet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was you're able to run it on anything, but really, you know, Linux and Apache, MySQL, and PHP dominated. The web, and for good reasons. It was it was a good uh, it was a good stack to work with. It you didn't have to pay the Microsoft tax. By this time, a- ASP.NET had come out and was quite a bit better than its predecessor, um, which shared only really the name. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we'd have to develop, uh, and we did do some projects in it. But the idea that you'd have to pay for um, you know a Microsoft SQL license and and uh, Microsoft's uh, web servers um, di- didn't didn't sit well with us, um, and you know we we're kind of hackers by nature anyway. So uh, be able to run on a you know there were open source alternatives at the time we could use Perl, um, but it, it if PHP felt felt like it was more of the path of the future for the web, and and I think we were right in that. I mean PHP certainly. For you know, a solid five years, um, really dominated in yeah. that space. Yeah, it exploded. That's that's for sure. All right. So, um, why did you why did you stop that uh, or 
close down that company, I guess, or and move on? That's an excellent question. Um, after seven years, I was and how many? Two children. Um, it was my wife was begging for something more stable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And I was debating going back to not debating. I was really planning on going back to. I, I thought I wanted to be a professor um, in philosophy, and I was uh, preparing to uh, to go to get a PhD in philosophy so I could pursue that. And it was, um, like I said, it's always in my life a, a series of surprising circumstances that change the course. Uh, so I, I, here I am preparing to get a philosophy degree. I sell the business I because you can't do that while you're in a PhD program. And I realized I had sold it uh, a little prematurely in that I needed a job to tide me over between uh, when I sold it, which must have been around January, and when the semester began. <laughs> um, and so somebody reached out to me, uh, a recruiter in New York City, and said, hey, we, we want you to be uh, an engineer at this new startup. Um, and they, they, they had known some of the PHP work I did, and they were a PHP shop, and um, and I was like, yeah, that's a great opportunity, and that sounds like a good short-term gig. It, I could I could definitely uh, be interested in that. And so the company was called Tackle, um, and it was the goal was to build a, a social network for sports. Uh, this is bef- this is after Facebook was created, but before Facebook was really what it is today it was it was just at a handful of universities at the time and uh, and we thought a social network related around sports was a great idea um, and, it, and it probably was a great idea but uh, Facebook uh, just took over but and anyway at, at this company I started as uh, the senior engineer uh, within a few months I was promoted to the VP of engineering um, and I was having the time of my life and realized I don't want to go back to school <laughs> at all. Okay. This, this is way too much fun, and the paychecks were uh, so much larger than I would get you know, ever from a philosophy degree uh, as a professor. And I thought, um, I'm, I'm, at the same time, my philosophy kind of professor mentor was counseling me to not pursue a PhD in philosophy. Um, and he, you know he he thought uh, pretty strongly. He's like Steve, you can do something great with computers, and you, you don't want to be stuck trying to to get tenure at a university for a decade before there's an opening. Um, and, and I think he was right. And anyway, <laughs> so yeah, I I never looked back. And you had the stability too, so your wife was happy. Yeah, with with the two kids, um, yeah, uh, she she was very happy that life got. Uh, steady paycheck and and everything. Yeah, great. All right, and then uh, how long did that whole thing go? So uh, I I bounced around from a few different startups, um, and uh, the first one was Tackle. Um, Facebook saw to uh, it, it, it had a successful exit, um, but not a, a financially rewarding exit for me. Um, but it sold to teen.com uh, 
and and it was focused around teenagers. It was a good fit. Uh, from there, I I actually went to be the uh, chief operating officer of a uh, luxury e-commerce company, and I did that for oh almost th- three years, and um, and that uh, took us right up into 2008 with the crash of the American economy and uh, it, nothing got hurt more than the luxury um, industry and uh, so that my time there came to an end and I uh, joined another e-commerce company called OpenSky uh, still based in New York City, these are all based in New York City and Open Sky um, was was a great experience for me, um, and it was the first time I really got to work with open source uh, as part of a job. Um, there we we uh, we used uh, three different open source projects heavily and contributed back heavily to them, uh, which was the Symphony pr- uh, framework in PHP, uh, the Mule. Uh, uh, ESB, um, Enterprise uh, Service Bus, is that right? ESB, Enterprise something bus, um, and uh, and MongoDB, and we ended up building the first uh, the first e-commerce platform uh, that was based on MongoDB while we were there, and one of the first websites in the world based on MongoDB. Yeah, wasn't the um, I can't remember his name now. The guy that did Ascetic for. Uh um, yeah, Symphony. Chris he was working with you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, Chris, uh, Chris, um, Wall Smith, and John Wage, both from the Symphony project, joined us at Open Sky, and and uh, and it was great having them. Um, and it was great to be able to give the Symphony project back some some you know practical real world usage um, that they were able to apply directly you know, to their learning into the project. So I, I think it was one of those win-win situations and, and uh, you know, uh, they're still at OpenSky actually and, and, and enjoying it and doing well. Great. And is, um, now these, this, this company, OpenSky, in the last few, are you <coughs> still actually writing code or are you more in a, in a managerial position? So I moved, Both. yeah, I, I, I moved more into management mm-hmm. um, and... I ended up, I, you know, my belief has always been to lead by example, and you can't really, um, you can't really manage technology if you're not doing it. And our industry changes so quickly that, it, you know, even a two-year gap, you might as well never have coded, because yeah. so much of it changes um, in in such a smart, short time frame. So I, I've, you know, I kind of always had the uh, right code in me gene. Um, like I always needed to do it. it I, I like management. Um, you know, I, I really like programming um, because I, I felt, it was, for me, it's a creative outlet. It lets me take some ideas that I have in my head and actually, you know, there's nothing in front of me and, and, um, and you know, I spend hours putting stuff together but at the end I've got something and it's something yes it's bits but it's it feels to me something tangible that uh, that I created and, I, and I'm not very artistically creative uh, but with programming it's 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 a, an opportunity to really make something that didn't exist before and right. and that for me is 
is is a real draw, um, and frankly, something that I just need to do. Uh, management is not that. Um, management is challenging in lots of different ways, and one of the things I like most about management is um, I always say managing bits is easy because you know how bits are going to react, mm-hmm. <laughs> and people don't have that quality at all. Yep. <laughs> um, like you just don't. You never get bored with management because the challenges are different every day, and um, you know. Plus, I love people, and the chance to work with great people is is another part. But so, there, but yeah, there's a bunch of different aspects. But yeah, so from from tackle on, I was in the management track. Um, always felt like I needed a program during that time. Sometimes the job was so busy that my programming took me. Uh, only to open source hobby, you know, on the side projects, and sometimes I was able to program on the job. Often, I found that um, the, what I ended up programming was usually stuff uh, because of lack of time to to dedicate to it was stuff that wasn't like uh, critical path stuff um, because you know there could be an HR issue or something, and then I I couldn't. You know, the four hours I had to code this week were gone. Right, and the whole project has stopped, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I tried to always put myself in the place where, you know, that's kind of philosophy I've taken to everything I do is is I don't want to be the person that's hindering progress in this. Right. And isn't 2008 also sort of the, the time you started blogging? At least that's what it seems like looking at your archives. Yeah, yeah. That was um, that was exactly when I started blogging, and I would say don't read most of my stuff from two thousand eight. <laughs> it's still pretty uh, pretty raw. Um, I'm pretty proud of some of the later stuff, but early on it was you know is I would say it's not a, I'm not a natural writer. Uh, that was very much a developed skill, and and it's I still have a long long way to go. I see good writers, and I realize how far I am from them, but. Um, I've definitely seen progress as I've been able to write over over years. Yeah, but I think it's very interesting. I mean, I just uh, sort of picked a few out here and there in the last day or two, and and it's interesting. I mean, my writing or my blog is all completely technical because that's yeah what I I mean I'm not great at that either, but that's the best. But you have always had a mix of that and. Um, other topics that are, and I guess that's because of you know your involvement in management. So that was always uh, that that seemed very interesting to me that you had this this good balance. It's so. also a bit of my nature. I I've never been the kind of person to be able to just do one thing at once. Um, I, I I I just don't know how. It's not who I am, and so I've always kind of um, you know done multiple things simultaneously. Um, where the, in, in you know at, at different jobs, uh, I might you know like at MongoDB, I ran five different teams. Um, they didn't have a lot in common with each other, um, and one of the teams wrote in fourteen different languages. So I I really kind of thrive in variety of things. I, I think I'd go crazy if I was doing the same thing all day every day, and and you you know it it's kind of schizophrenic, but. Um, it, it it fits my personality pr- pretty well, and if you look at my blog, y- you're right. It's it's kind of all over the place, but um, well, I didn't mean that in a bad way because, uh, and now that you say that, you have you know this sort of um, 
I guess most people in, in software development, they enjoy the constant change and the constant learning. But for you, it seems like it's, it's another few levels up that you have to have several things going on at the same time and learning several things at the same time. Yeah, it took me a while to realize that. I'm, uh, which, frankly, is a good thing for management. Uh, I've always thought management, the best managers are people that are broad um, and uh, with enough depth to, to be successful. Uh, but you know, typically, great managers are not people that have lots of depth and little breadth. It's usually people that can really, you know, um, understand things, uh, a lot of different things. And, uh, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, you're, you're, it took me a while to realize it, but you're right. It's, uh, I'm, I'm at a, a different level and that's not a boastful thing. It's just the, who I am. I, I need that, that change. It drives my wife nuts, <laughs> but what, what made you, um, why did you decide to blog? Um, that's a good question. I, man, that was a long time ago. I'm not sure if I know the answer to why this, I, I think for me, it was just another one of those creative outlets. Mm. Um, and I love challenges and I knew I wasn't particularly good at writing, but I, I did feel like I, I had something that needed to be said. And, um, you know, partly at first I was writing for me. Um, and if you look at a lot of my first posts, you'll see that, um, you know, I'm kind of writing, uh, really just my ideas down. Um, and over time I started, I, I still write mostly for me, but I, I kind of think more of an audience now than I did then. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, try and, you know, I also write a lot less now than I did then. Um, the last few years I, I regret that I'm not writing I'm doing lots more presenting, but a lot less blogging. And, and maybe for me, that's kind of the creative outlet. I uh, just transposed to a different place. But um, yeah, I, I wish I was. Uh, I, I keep making goals to blog more. But, um, uh, and, and, they, and I do, but not as much as I wish I did. Um, yep. So then after this, you were basically in, in MongoDB or at MongoDB? Yeah, so the opportunity came uh, after OpenSky to join a very young MongoDB at, a, at an early stage. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it rose to become the most prominent NoSQL database and, and even challenged a lot of the SQL databases for market share and different things. Uh, but when I joined, it had none of, uh, it, it to me, seemed, I liked it. I'd used it at OpenSky. I saw the potential of it. I, I've always been the kind of person that uh, picks the products they like um, and sticks by them. Um, and I, I saw how great Mongo was for our use case and knew that, uh, fundamentally knew that it was going to change the way development happened. Um, and, I st and I believe it did. Uh, and I, I still believe that to this day. I think it, it, it has changed the way development happens. Um, even if people don't use MongoDB, they're using ideas and, and uh, other databases that MongoDB helped to uh, usher in. How, um, can you explain that? How do you mean it, uh, it changed the way we develop? So for a solid, oh, for a long time, database and relational uh, database were synonymous uh, for 30 years. I mean, 
that was however we judge generations, a good five or six generations in, in our industry, uh, where there just really wasn't anything that wasn't relational. And as, as I've said, I kind of grew up on the lamp stack, so to speak. Like most of my career to that point was building um, applications for the internet based on, uh, based on um, you know, relational databases and working with them. And, um, you know, we used ORMs. That was a popular uh, abstraction, which made them feel more like an object in the database, in the programming language, but it was converting them into these very tabular, you know, two-dimensional data structures on disk. Um, and, you know, at, at the time, I'd spent a lot of my career uh, working with relational databases. I, I didn't talk about it, but I was a... a, a an Oracle DBA um, for uh, a summer, um, and I I had spent countless uh, hours uh, studying MySQL, looking through the source code, um, trying to figure out best ways to optimize things. Like I I I was uh, I was always proficient uh, on the data side of things, and within a month of using Mongo, I realized uh, I had no. I, I just realized, I, oh my gosh, I wasted ten years or fifty, whatever, uh, becoming an expert in SQL uh, because I don't know that I'll ever use it again. Um, that that turned out to not be true. I have <laughs> used it again, okay. uh, but reality was was most applications I develop, most type of applications I use that require databases are much better fit for a MongoDB-style database than, um, than anything. In fact, if anyone's ever used an ORM, um, you know, reality is, is MongoDB is a better fit. It's an object store. You're storing objects. Uh, or, you know, it, it skips that whole um, process of translation. Process, yeah. and, and, I, and I realized, you know, and we saw the speeds, Increase monumentally um, switching. You know, at OpenSky, we switched from a MySQL application to MongoDB, and load times dropped by, you know, ninety plus percent, um, and the code got so much simpler, and we had fewer bugs. And uh, I just thought it fundamentally um, would change the way people wrote applications. That they would be able to, you know, skip all these intermediate layers. Um, and, and work with a database that, that really kind of fit with the way people were writing applications. Yep. And, and I think that's true. Uh, I also think the kind of applications people have written are also changing. Um, and, you know, we're seeing people uh, scale up into larger data sets and doing more calculations on the database than we, than we had previously to now. Um, and you know that's an area that MongoDB is good at, but but things like Hadoop and Storm and Spark are also addressing that. So so the whole makeup of it's gotten more complicated as well. Yeah. Okay, and um, I guess on uh, where did the the Vim the Vim distribution come in? Is that already out at this point, or I yeah, guess that's something so sort of a side project you always were keeping. Because you needed it yourself, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was not a project. Um, 
this is an interesting story. So I, I you know, I had built in the, this PHP framework, and and I was, I built in a number of uh, projects in in PHP and 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 at per, in Perl and a few other languages that were legitimate projects that I w- contributed to and shared. This was not one of them. Uh, this one was my personal Vim config file. That's it. The reason I called it SPF 13 Vim was because I didn't know what else to call it because <laughs> it was my name and yeah. my Vim. Um, and I put it up on... Um, you know, at this, uh, I, I don't know the exact timing. I, I want to say maybe 2007. Um, that I, you know, it, everyone has a Vim file. So as long as I've been using Vim, which, uh, you know, I don't remember the exact time I switched over to it, but it was probably the early 2000s. Um, and everybody had a Vim file, and you kind of copied it with you from computer to computer as you went and tweaked it over time. And um, when Subversion came, to prominence, I started putting it in Subversion, and I put it on SourceForge, and uh, some people started using it. I thought, well, that's kind of neat. I'm glad that that we can share it, and um, and I kind of had a couple iterations of it, uh, tweaking it and making it a little more uh, friendly for, you know, mo- most of it was actually a, a coworker of mine started using it too, and so I had the. Together we came up with the idea of, oh, well, he'll just have a fork of mine, and, but we'll make it so this is really, this is nice and easy for people to have forks, uh, because he, he had one. And, um, and then, then GitHub emerged, and I put it on GitHub, and all of a sudden it started growing in popularity, and quickly, and a lot of people started using it. And uh, again, it's just my personal Vim configuration, but it pretty quickly became not my personal. You know, once you have hundreds and then thousands of users, it's not yours anymore. It's it's the community, and so um, and I, uh, you know, so it kind of grew very organically over time, um, and people kept contributing to it, and over time, collectively, we made something that that. Frankly, I just really enjoy using. I love going into the config file um, when I need to do things because it's super well commented. Um, and I've had a lot of people come up to me at various conferences and things say, you know, Steve, I, I don't use your Vim config. And I'm like, okay, that's an interesting way to start a conversation. <laughs> but then they say, but I, I learned a lot from it and I, I do my own config. And, and I'm always, that makes me thrilled yeah. when I hear that because I wasn't, I'm not, you know, it's not, this is not a commercial thing. This is not an ego thing. It was just me doing something uh, to help me. And then other people helping, you know, collectively, we all kind of help each other. And, and the idea that um, other people are benefiting from it, uh, this makes me really happy. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's kind of taken a life of its own. There's a number of uh, external maintainers that aren't me. Um, and... Um, you know, it's it's still pretty active and, and vibrant. I, I will say it doesn't change as much. The changes are coming. There's small improvements here and there, but <clears throat> major changes. It's definitely stabilized. Um, you know, and uh, and uh, it, the the other nice thing is because I programmed so many different languages over my career. Um, it's one. It might be the only Vim distribution um, that isn't. Um, 
isn't uh, very specific to a, a given language, that it really tries to be um, you know, a good environment for lots of different activities, whether you're writing a blog post or you're you know, writing Scala um, or, or Go or anything else. Um, and, and the other thing, I would say one of the things that, that suited me really well with this was, um, this comes back from my VI days, um, you know, you used to SSH into a box and you need to be able to be able to edit things. So you needed to, you know, have all the normal commands work exactly the way you expected to, all the right keystrokes and everything. And, you know, there, there was cream was kind of a popular... Vim distribution, and, and that was where I got the idea to call it a Vim distribution because that's what Cream was. Uh, but they made it all like Windows like, and uh, you know, um, it was awful to use because <laughs> it, it changed all these, you know, the way you use Vim. And why would I want to use Vim like, like I would use Notepad? That to me just felt so backwards. And so, you know, w- one of the rules I had very early on was um, we're making it so. Uh, it'll make your experience better when it's here, but I don't want to change anything so that your muscle memories learn something that you know would be different in regular Vim. So there's a lot of additive things, but nothing that really changes the core of using Vim. And I think that that resonated with a lot of people. Um, at least you know that's kind of the sense I get from from talking to people was that 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 decision really. Um, made it so that it was very approachable and accessible for people because they didn't have to relearn their muscle memory, which is way too hard when you're using Vim. When you do something and, and you know, you're trying to uh, change a word and all of a sudden it is something different, then you just get really frustrated quickly. So. Right. Is, you wrote an article about um, this, and, and basically in it you, you issued the Vim challenge, at least that's how I remember it. This was, I think it was PHP Architect, the magazine that was in? Yes, yes. The, Is, wow. Did they approach you? Your homework. They, they, <laughs> no, they, well, I experienced this. That's why, that's why I know this. Um, well, because I read that article and I started using Vim because of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just curious if, if that is something that you initiated or, or did they reach out to you and ask you because of the Vim distribution or SPF 13 Vim, did they come to you and say, hey, why don't you write about this? They approached me. Okay. Um, I, yeah, your, your memory is better than I am. I, I do remember writing the article and, and it getting published. Um, I, don't remember, I, I don't remember if they gave me the topic or not, but they definitely approached me about writing an article for them. Okay. Um, and the challenge was my idea. Yeah. Uh, so that one is, uh, yeah. And, and just, I guess, for our listeners who probably don't have a copy of the printed version of PHP Architect, um, the challenge that I like to issue is, is spend three weeks using nothing but Vim. And uh, is that what it was? Do you remember if it yeah. was three? It might have yeah. been two then. Uh, if I, uh, I've learned it's three. You need three weeks. Right, uh, you basically have to endure that amount of, or that, you know, pain for that long to, to start to see something at least. And uh, yeah, it's a, the first week is the painful one. The first week you're gonna feel like you are typing with a you know <laughs> Japanese keyboard or something like it just doesn't. Yeah, it'll feel so frustrating. But by the end of the first week, you don't feel. You feel less frustrated. You're starting to feel like you got a sense of it. You know, like the training wheels are off. And then the second week, 
you feel, most of the second week, you're going to feel about the same as you would in another application. Um, you, you know, you're starting to feel like you kind of get it, and it's not a, it's not a hindrance anymore. And that's why the third week's key, because in the third week is when you start getting, putting together things and realizing kind of the benefit of using Vim, that you can do things faster with Vim. So it, it's in that third week that you, you know, you start learning some of the, it just comes together better and you start realizing some of the movements and the way you can kind of piggyback things together and, you know, within two or three keystrokes you can, you can do a lot. And, and it takes that third week to kind of get that, that vision of what you can do and start getting a sense of it. So a lot of, a lot of people, so it's not pain the whole time, it's pain part of the time. It's a lot of pain at the beginning. <laughs> yes. Um, but that third week is really key because if you don't have that third week, you don't really have that, that uh, draw to keep going. Right. Um, but yeah, that was what I, from my experience, I realized it, it was about three weeks. And then, you know, I've issued that challenge to lots of people and I've had other people kind of give me that same feedback. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, just one more question on the whole Vim thing because I I, um, I have been using your distribution. I still have it on on my system, but I actually recently started using um, PHP Storm uh, as my PHP editor, and that yeah. was simply because of um, uh, context-aware um, autocomplete. Um, and on larger code bases, I found that that was, for me at least, was necessary. How did you? I mean, I don't know if you actually write PHP anymore. We'll get to that later. But um, <coughs> how did you get around that? I just didn't think that there is a, a really a good um, IntelliSense option for Vim, for PHP at least. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is an area where... Um, so might surprise some people to say, but I've actually tried a lot of other editors. Um, in spite of maintaining one of the most popular Vim projects, um, I'm constantly not satisfied with Vim. And I keep trying other things in hopes that there's something better out there. Mm -hmm. I still use Vim um, most of the time. Uh, the vast majority of the time, I still use Vim. But reality is, is um, there's parts of Vim and the Vim community that just aren't as good as some of the other things out there. And you're pointing out a big one here. Um, the fact is, PHP Storm, commercial product, they have people full-time working on making that PHP editing experience better. And, and you know, the, the PHP Storm is part of the IntelliJ platform, um, of which they've got really good intelligent autocomplete. You have to for Java. Right, like Java is just an awful language to write <laughs> if you don't have autocomplete, um, and so they, they they spend a lot of resources in that. But it certainly benefits other languages. Um, now there there is stuff going on in the Vim world that that does approach what you find there. Uh, I think the most exciting project I've I've seen so far is uh, let me make sure I get the right name of it. Um, so I'm going to actually look it up while we're talking. But it used to be called Autocomplete Cache, and then he rewrote it in Lua. And um, now it's just called... You Complete up. Me? No. Well, no. Uh, You Complete Me is, is good. 
um, it's for me. It's the one of the challenges with you complete me is you have to, you have to. It's a C application you have to build, right? And that made it hard to expect it to be there, and, and certainly hard for a lot of people to get working. Uh, so yeah, so the one I'm looking, the one I was thinking of, is called NeoComplete. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and NeoComplete is um, there was a version of it called NeoComplete Cache, uh, which was written in VimScript, and it um, was slow. And of course it was. It was written in VimScript. VimScript is not a good uh, language, uh, in my opinion. Um, and um, so he, the guy, I, I don't know his first uh, how to pronounce his name quite, quite right, but his name is. Is, I'll spell it. It's S H O U G O, um, and I believe he's Japanese, but I'm not positive about that. But he rewrote it in Lua, which works really well, and it's it's actually surprisingly easy to install. Hmm. Um, and it's called NeoComplete, and it has a lot of the features that you'd expect. It has um, contextual autocomplete, and it um, one of the one of the things about Vim that not that I don't love is that Vim has a bunch of autocompletes, but they're different, and they require different keystrokes to trigger it. So you can do a dictionary autocomplete, you can do a buffer autocomplete, you can use the um, what's there? It's not called maybe maybe it's called IntelliSense, but like the the built-in kind of intelligent autocomplete, um, and and there's a few other things that that you can do. There's a but NeoComplete kind of softens those edges a bit and makes it so that it it can be better but it also requires support for the language right that doesn't have to be specific to neocomplete but you need to add it into the vim autocomplete system and that just depends on the language so <coughs> yeah i personally don't do much php anymore um that's an understatement i don't i haven't touched it since i left mongo mm-hmm. um <coughs> and um, yeah, so it, Python's and Ruby are a bit better. The Go autocomplete's really good, which is what I do most of today. Um, I think you know if PHP is lagging, it's it, there's just it requires somebody to step up and say, "Hey, I want to make this better." Yeah, and um, you know, and that's one of the problems with using a non-commercial editor. Is that if nobody does that, then it just gets worse. And yeah, um, yeah so I, I think PHP Storm is, is a good program. I, I actually recommend it for beginners. I like Adam too. I think Adam, uh, which is from the GitHub team, shows a lot of promise and and hopefully gets there. Um, I like that all these also have a Vim mode. Yep, that's which, what I use. Yeah, isn't perfect, but um, you know none of them are quite perfect and. And I've, I find, uh, you know, there's a few movements that I like to use that aren't supported, but, uh, but largely it, it, it feels like Vim, and, uh, but it's a little bit prettier and has better autocomplete and, um, you know. Yeah, everything has, has the trade-offs. I'm just, I have a project that has like 30 different packages <laughs> included, and there's just no way you can, you know, navigate that or keep that in your head even remotely keep that in your head and navigating it with a smarter IDE or yeah. Yeah, something that helps you out. Just I found that that's uh, very useful. 
Yeah, I, so I did Scala for a while, and um, and I felt the same way. I thought, you know, there's I just can't use Vim for this. I tried. The tooling just wasn't, in spite of good efforts from people to make plugins, for me it just felt like it was <clears throat> so much harder than using IntelliJ um, or, or Eclipse, for that matter, to do it. It just felt like, uh, why? Why struggle right. so much with it? Um, yeah. And... Yeah, so luckily um, most of my code today is in Go, and the Go Vim is, I think, second to none in, in that. But, um, yeah, it, it really just depends on uh, on the tooling that you have. Um, you know, I write a lot of Markdown, too, and Vim is great at Markdown. It can really do well yeah. for for that kind of stuff, so... Okay, well, we took a took a long detour here, but this was something that I was very interested in, and uh, um, so basically, you're still at uh, MongoDB or about to leave, and you're going where? Um, yeah, so I was at MongoDB for three years. Mm -hmm. um, I led uh, the developer experience team, which included evangelism, documentation. Uh, uh, websites, um, the drivers and integrations engineering teams, um, as well as our internal tools team, um, and general responsibilities for the open source community. Um, like I said, I, I really can't just do one thing, <laughs> and um, and like those are pretty different things, but. We at first we didn't have a name for the team, and I realized, oh, that all comes to developer experience. So we actually that that name came after two years of searching for one, but uh, it fit it well. Um, and yeah, so from uh, that that was a great experience, and it, and it really let me develop. Uh, like I said, we had a team writing fourteen different programming languages on the same project. That was a really interesting experience to. To kind of realize that not only programming language is different, but programmers that choose those languages are also very different. <laughs> and trying to get them all to work well was was probably the hardest challenge of, of the management side of my career. But but we did. Uh, we ended up working really well together. Um, and you know th that turned me on to so at at MongoDB I, I I saw these different languages, and I've always been a bit of a polyglot, kind of appreciating the differences in different languages. And that might have come from my beginning of starting with, you know, vastly different languages. Um, but while I was there, I had the opportunity to start, you know, I, I, I did code reviews and contributed to, to almost every one of those languages. Um, I, and, I, and many of which I didn't know before that job. Um, but learned while I was there. Um, and one of the languages I was exposed to that I didn't have experience with before was Go. And, of course, nobody had experience with before because it didn't exist before. But, um, yeah, and when, once I started playing with Go, I stopped playing with other things. Uh -huh. And for me, I, I saw you know a, a language that just really felt like it fit me and it worked the way I thought things should work. Um, not perfectly. There's a few things that I still think are a little odd, but for the most part, it, it, it was a language I just felt very productive in, and and really was excited with the way it was going. Um, and so, I, I kept while I was at MongoDB, I kept um, 
do, you know, doing that job of working with all languages, but in my free time, I, I was only writing Go. Um, by the, I don't know, about uh, a year and a half into that job. And, and the first project I chose to write and go is, is Hugo, which you mentioned earlier. Yep. Yep. And I did that. I, so I lived <clears> outside <throat> New York City because um, I have four children. And if you have four children, you have to live outside New York City. And, uh, or at least you should live outside New <laughs> York City. And so I, I have a decent commute on the train every day. And I chose to, to write Hugo mostly on my train time. Uh-huh. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it's like, okay, you have <coughs> jobs that require a lot of attention, a lot of time, and then you have four kids. Um, I was wondering where you got the time to write this, these side projects. So that yeah, explains it. Largely, yeah, train time for me was great because the New York City area, we don't have, like, cell service or Wi-Fi on the trains and, um, you know, you surprising to people because they think of New York as a kind of metropolis and it is it's a huge metropolis but as soon as you get outside of the city it's it's forest and country and um, you know there's dead zones everywhere so it was it was nice because it let me focus for you know a solid 90 minutes every day uh, which is just about the perfect uh, like coding session for me is 90 distraction free minutes um, you know, with with a definitive end of like I have to get off the train now um, because if I don't, I'm not going to be where my my car is and yeah. my wife will be happy. <laughs> so yeah, it was really good, and and you know that's where most of most of Hugo is written. Can you I'm explain what what Hugo is and why you chose to write that type of thing? Uh, sure. So Hugo is a static site website generator. Um, and what it does is it takes content files uh, marked down most commonly, although it has support for restructured text and ASCII doc um, and HTML as well. It takes these raw files uh, on disk and combines them with some templates and produces a website, produces a bunch of HTML files. Um, and my catalyst for doing this was I was using WordPress to, to run my blog. Um, it was actually the third engine I'd used on my blog, uh, but that's a bit of a longer story. Um, but And with WordPress, as I mentioned earlier, I was blogging less and less, and WordPress is what it is. It's, it's a really nice interface uh, for blogs, um, but it also has lots of patches. And I ended, and I did, so I, I kind of looked at it and I said to myself, you know, I'm spending more time patching my blog than I'm actually spending writing. And that's, that's not good. <laughs> that's a really bad ratio. And, and as I thought about it more, I was also paying, I don't know, like $25, $30 a month uh, for a VPS that was running my blog, and it kept running out of memory. And I thought, why am I even doing this? Because my content, you know, changes once every month or two. Um, why, why, why is it so expensive to serve HTML that's not changing? And, and those two, you know, so from that idea, I thought, well, I should, I should just do a static site. And, you know, the popular project at the time was Jekyll. And, um, so I, I decided I I was explain, play with some of the different static site generators. I have about 150 posts on my blog 
And I started porting to Jekyll. And I also discovered I wanted to, like, CSS3 was becoming a thing or had become a thing. And responsive web was becoming a thing. And I was like, you know what? I, I need to get back to my roots and kind of learn these technologies. So I decided I was going to go frameworkless, just build a theme from scratch, build a, build a website from scratch, um, you know, not using any framework to do this, just so I could actually learn what's going on. And I started doing that with Jekyll, with my 150 posts, and I'd make a change to the template, and then I'd, and I'd render it with Jekyll, and it would take five minutes. Oh, wow. And I said, and I asked my friends, how do you do this? I was like, oh, I write this complicated rake script that moves all the posts somewhere else, and it only renders like three posts, and then, and then it only takes like 15 seconds. And I was like, that just sounds dreadful. <laughs> um, and I was already playing with Go, um, and I'd done like the tutorials and, and the tour and, and read you know, every book I could. And I thought to myself, all right, well, you know, like like any anyone, I'm uh, any good hacker. If I I want a project to work on, and and I see a need here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna write in Go. I bet I can I bet I can make it faster. Uh, I just had a feeling that Go, something a static site engine in Go would be faster than one written in Ruby. And and of course, once it's done, I'll have all of these barriers out of the way, so I'll be blogging a ton more because I won't have to worry about maintaining my server anymore and I won't have to be worried about um, you know like my theme will be done and if I want to tweak it it'll be fast to change it so I started writing Hugo and I spent six months writing nothing really I didn't write blog posts or anything I was just writing Hugo and um, in six maybe six months not accurate but around that time period and when I was when I was done I had something that I thought was pretty interesting and it, uh, I was right. It was faster. It's about a thousand times faster than Jekyll. Um, instead of taking five minutes to render my blog, it took uh, two tenths of a second. Wow, that's a kind of a change. <laughs> Which was dramatic. Um, I did not expect it to be. I expected it to be faster. I did not expect it to be that much faster. Um, I was wrong in thinking that once it was done which already is a mistake, that I would have a lot more time to blog because, <laughs> as it turns out, Hugo is not done and a project like this is never done. Um, and it spawned a few other projects because, uh, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was just trying to write a project and go um, as my kind of cut-my-teeth project. And, um, you know, Go is still a pretty young language and, and a pretty young ecosystem. And so as I'm writing it, I was fortunate that I found a, a markdown render, which was it's called Black Friday, and it was really good. Um, but other than that, um, most of the libraries I needed, I ended up writing myself. Um, because I looked for them, and there just wasn't anything out there that could do what I wanted to do. And so um, you know, I, I was surprised as I was getting into it, and I wasn't really part of the Go community yet because it was my first project. But I, you know, I kept poking around. Hey, where where is this? And and people say, Oh no, it doesn't exist. I'm like okay, all right. So I went off and built a number of libraries to support Hugo, um, and over time became more involved with the Go community. And and um, you know, some of the libraries I've written to support Hugo are 
uh, have gained uh, adoption across across a lot of the Go community. Um, and so, it, you know, it's it's an interesting thing uh, that when you join a language like that, you're going to have to you're going to have to write a lot of libraries. They don't exist yet, but you also have a chance to kind of shape and, and direct the way the community goes. Um, and so it's, it's a trade-off there, but um, I'm, I'm really happy to be part of that community and, and to be able to have added value and, and kind of shape the way that we, we do things in, in some degree. And now you're left with uh, maintaining several more open source projects. Uh, yes, but I uh, I've learned early on, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that my my goal is always that I will not get in the way of my of of my project success. So I've been fortunate that um, there's been other people also interested, and I am maintaining them all these projects. But I have co-maintainers for almost all of them, and um, and 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 people doing fantastic job. And and certainly uh, these projects have grown beyond me. Um, you know, just uh, I'll I'll mention one. Of, one of them's called Cobra, which is a commander. If you grew up in the United States at the time I did, that would be you'd enjoy that um, because there was a popular cartoon character uh, called Cobra Commander. Um, but that one has two capitals, so it's a bit different. But um, uh, so yeah, so Cobra is it's just a tool to build CLI applications. And I, st I built it for Hugo, but the Kubernetes team adopted it. And they've gone and added a ton of support for things like Bash Autocomplete and uh, automatically generating uh, man pages. And, and they, they've done quite a bit of work with it. And, uh, and now the Rocket team has adopted it, and part of Docker's adopted it. And um, you know, it's really getting adoption across the industry. Um, and and everyone benefits um, because you know and, and the project's clearly grown beyond beyond me. So I, I still contribute to it and help guide it, but there's tons of talented engineers making it far better than I could have. So do do you think <coughs> the the success of these projects is that um, I don't know based on or is it because of your experience with open source and and I guess the way you're connected. Um, with other open source folks that these took off, or you were just again in a in a lucky spot that you you basically found something that a lot of people needed, and it just happened that it became um, very popular. I I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think I I kind of look back at it. So I look back on the experience of Zoop, which for all intents and purposes uh, was better than. Any other PHP framework of its time, um, and it ne never caught on as well. It was not as popular as Cake, uh, and I think the timing was just off. I think it came to fruition a bit early. I also um, wasn't as integrated with the PHP community, um, which was uh, just becoming in, in person for the first time. I didn't even know that ZenCon was a thing. Um, and I, and so I look back on that. I, th I think why 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 was that not as successful? Because technically, I think it was as successful as, as as later things, but certainly it didn't get the community around it and other things. And 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 so you know what what what's different? I think um, I think timing's a big part of it. I think I think I um, 
just happened to be really fortunate to encounter um, the language at the right time. Um, when, you know, at the beginning, when a lot of projects are kind of uh, being established and decisions are being made about which kind of ones are the ones that people are going to use and follow. Um, and at the same time, I think, um, you know, in some of the projects, I feel like I'm pretty proud of the way they turned out. A lot of them are experiments, and you're not quite sure if what you have at the end is going to be something really useful or not. Um, you know, with Cobra, I'm particularly proud of that one. And, and with Hugo, I think they both turned out really well. Um, I, think, I think part of it is the community, but when I started, I didn't know anyone in the Go community. Um, so, it, you know, but I was, I did focus on those relationships and I, I did want to, you know, I've always enjoyed programming communities and to be a part of this one at an early stage and to kind of help set the direction that it goes on. Um, for me, I just felt like it's something I, I wanted to be a part of and, and kind of felt the burden to do as well, not burden, opportunity to do. Like I felt like it. I've been around open source now. I'm kind of the gray-haired guy in the room, um, and to be able to kind of share some of those experiences, um, and and also for me, a big part of it is, I I saw I, I've been a part of a lot of communities, and, and I've seen some that I didn't like the way they turned out. Um, particularly, I think some communities were very abrasive, um, and and you know definitely not uh, respectful to other people. Um, uh, you know, some because of gender or different things, others just because of uh, aggressiveness and perceived lack of intelligence of other people. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't think there's a place for this in any professional organization. Um, but I certainly feel like open source, we, we have to be better than that. Um, and so to be a part of a community where this wasn't, didn't exist yet and to help uh, to help them make sure that it didn't exist, I, I felt like that that was an opportunity I really wanted to be a part of. Is that uh, a topic that you speak on, um, or or do you more speak on the the technical things? Like I guess your your projects. I I, I don't even know, but you uh, you attended several conferences just before. Um, well, in the last few weeks, I know that because we tried to arrange for a schedule. Yeah. Um, you were, I am assuming that you're not uh, simply attending. You're probably speaking. Yeah, I well, so this year I've um this year I've given a couple keynotes and which was so early I'll I'll run through recently. I spoke at this fantastic conference called Sinfo um in Portugal. Um they had I, I gave a keynote there and I talked about what an open source project needs to be successful and it wasn't technical. Mm -hmm. Um it was all the little things that people don't think about that you need to have um, to, f to foster a community. And, um, and there's a lot of them. And, and, and you need to have a good technical project, but if you look at the most popular projects, a lot of them aren't technically superior, but they have all the right pieces in place and over time become technically better. Um, and, and that was kind of the premise of that. And then uh, more recently, I, I, I gave the keynote at LinuxCon, and that one I talked about uh, the future of, of uh, Linux and how containers were going to be a big part of that. And, and I should mention, which I haven't yet, that um, I left MongoDB about a year ago, just over a year ago, 
and joined Docker a few months later. And and Docker, uh, I joined for similar reasons as as why I got involved with Go, is I saw an opportunity to to shape uh, how open source businesses are run, and uh, and I think Docker is changing the industry. I think um, I think open source is changing the industry, and we're seeing more and more companies where their revenue models are based on open source products. Um, and that's not something we saw a lot of historically. Uh, so that that's in the last five years. There's kind of an emergence, and and MongoDB was a big part of that. Um, certainly one of the mo most successful open source companies, uh, defined as as one where the revenue depended on an open source project. Um, and Docker certainly seemed like the next one. So still seems like the next one. But that was the reason I joined. <coughs> was to help them actualize that goal and, and to, to shape how the industry uh, perceived open source. Um, and so I got a chance to speak at LinuxCon about that. Um, more recently, I, I spoke at, what, what did I do, the last three, was DockerCon. Um, I was at it at the beginning of last month, and there I ran... Um, uh, the first ever contributor summit at Docker, where we got together our most active contributors and, and had them all face to face for the first time, and were able to uh, to really talk about um, how to br bring this project forward. And then I spoke. At, I didn't speak at GopherCon, so at GopherCon this year, I, I was really happy to see this um, that the organizers. Uh, with very few exceptions, had a completely new uh, cast. Uh, so I spoke at GopherCon last year, which was the first ever uh, Go-based uh, Go Go, uh, conference. And this year, um, I was really pleased to see that, um, with the exception of the core Go team, there were no repeats. Um, and that because I've seen in other communities, you kind of have this the usual suspects. That yeah, it's the same time. people over and over. Yeah. And and why? There's, these are brilliant communities full of people. Uh, let's, you know, and especially a young one like Go, it, it was really great for them to, to do that. Um, so I, I didn't speak, but I did get the chance to help organize it. And uh, for me, my, the role they asked me to play was to, to run the lightning talk, which was a full day of lightning talks. Um, and, and I had a co-MC uh, with me. Uh, Mark Bates, um, and uh, we just had tons of fun with it. We had about 35 speakers, um, and um, yeah, it was it was great. It was great to see the community stand up and to see the different innovative ideas that came out of, of the Lightning Talks. Um, and then after that was OzCon, and in OzCon, I got a chance to speak on, on Docker um, and, and give a workshop there. So... It's been yeah. This year's been interesting. It's been as you as everything in my life. It's been a variety of different topics, and and it keeps it keeps it interesting. Yeah, and certainly busy. Wow. <laughs> it's been a busy month. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so what are the the topics that you tend to speak about on the conferences? Um. So it, I don't know. That there is a tend. I, I I like to. I don't like to give the same talk over and over. Um, I, I've spoken on, um, you know, MongoDB, I spoke a lot about data 
but from different perspectives. So I, I gave, I spoke at, um, I spoke at, there's this giant genealogy conference uh, that happens annually, and I spoke there about how uh, a document store like MongoDB was really good for genealogy data. And, um, you know, I spoke uh, at e-commerce conferences, and I spoke at web conferences um, about databases. Um, I spoke uh, at a VC conference about how the world was changing uh, because of data and how that could affect their businesses. Um, you know, and then I also speak regularly on different programming languages. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've been speaking more and more about open source and what that means and how that can affect an organization and, and how open source developers can in, get, engage their communities and, and do more. Um, so it, it's, it's varied, and, and I like that. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know the, that I have a general thread that I like to speak on. Um, it's, it's, it's really, I, I kind of have different ideas and sometimes I'm at the point now where I usually get asked more than submit, um, because there's enough people asking that I, I don't have time to submit as much as I, I used to. Um, and, and often there's kind of a general theme that they're looking for. And then I, I kind of take my own spin on it. Um, but yeah, it's 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 fun. I, I like to speak about Go a lot too. I mean, things that are close to my heart is really building cool things, and um, I love building cool projects. I love building great communities. I love building great teams and companies. Um, I, I think open source is a great way to do a lot of this. Um, so so usually it's on one of those trends that I'm speaking about things. Very cool. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, one more thing I was curious about, I forgot to ask earlier, is how come there are so many different languages um, at MongoDB? Is that because of the drivers, or what's the reason for that? Yeah, so that's exactly why. We, okay. we, um, I, I, I think one of the things that people don't recognize very often is, is that one of the reasons MongoDB was so successful is that it provided a, a pretty native experience in almost every programming language, at least every popular programming language. And, I mean, it had, it had better support in Node than MySQL did. Um, it had better support in Go than relational databases did. Um, it really focused on having a very idiomatic, um, you know, natural-feeling experience across a wide variety of languages. And, and we couldn't have done that without our open source community. This is one area where MongoDB uh, did so well with the open source world in that uh, a lot of, we built a handful of drivers in-house. Um, we, of course, open source. The open source community uh, responded with great open source drivers uh, in different languages that we hadn't done yet, as well as great contributions. Um, and it was something that paid huge dividends in adoption, um, and paid huge dividends in, you know, you go to a company, um, you know, one of Mongo's bigger companies uh, that's publicly known, MetLife. You go to a company like that, and, and the fact that they can have Mongo work with all of their different programming languages um, was a huge asset to them. Um, and, and one that, you know, that they were able to do a training that, that worked pretty uni universally across those languages was, again, just a huge asset. Uh, when you went to those big enterprises like that, um, but 
it was an interesting challenge because we had to build the same, the drivers the same in all these different languages, but it couldn't be identical because it needed to be idiomatic to the language, but it needed to feel the same across the different languages, but also feel part of that language. Um, plus it was the challenge of, you know, how do you build a driver in languages that are single-threaded versus multi-threaded, asynchronous versus synchronous, and, um, you know, and how do you keep an architecture kind of consistent across these different things? There, there were lots of really big challenges with this. To my knowledge, I don't know any, anyone who, who did a project like that before um, at, with this number of languages. It was really, it was really a, a fun challenge to do. Yeah, sounds like it's fascinating. <coughs> All right, so I think that that pretty much brings us up to to today, right? I mean, you're still at Docker, so I'm I'm still at Docker, and and we're we're doing great things with the open source community, mm -hmm. and and working well with Go. Yeah, uh, yeah. So things that I'm excited about. Awesome, Khalil. Do you have any more questions? <coughs> um. Yeah, I think so. So. Um, basically about Docker. So, so Docker is there's um, from what I've seen, there's a lot of developers that are uh, interested in Docker that 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 think um, that 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 really get into Docker because it makes their development life a little better. And uh, I just wanted to know if you have like a a pitch to. To a de to to developers like who who should have who should look into Docker, um, yeah, just who great should, question. Yeah, um, so I'll say one of the things that appealed to me most about Go was that it's a uh, it's compiled language, but it compiles really fast and it compiles into a single binary. So once you put it on what like. Previously, I had run teams that were using Ruby and Python and PHP and Java and, and Scala and Perl uh, in production. And deploying those th languages to production, each of them are pretty challenging. Um, and each of them you have to worry about dependencies and you're copying lots of files over to each of the servers. And you know if one environmental thing is different uh, from your dev environment to your staging environment to your production environment things blow up and you know i i think f at least in my experience from what i've experienced and seen uh, most outages came from uh things like this where there are environmental differences and in spite of good testing in previous places it, it just wasn't the same um and and it's really hard in fact whenever i talk about docker i ask people how many people in the room had a identical dev, staging, and testing environments, uh, and production environments? Uh, to date, I've had one person raise their hand <laughs> um, who was at a startup, and I had one other person raise his hand who worked at Google. Um, and, of course, Google has a giant team dedicated to that. Um, and one person at a startup, and I, 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 I questioned... Uh, uh, why a startup would have enough time to actually get there. Mm -hmm. Because startups are usually rush, rush, rush building the product and they can't do this. Mm -hmm. so, so one of the things I liked about Go is it's static binary. One file. If you get that file on there, then it works. It doesn't depend on that environment very much. Um, 
but reality is it still depends on other files. It's not isolated. It just that's the it doesn't have dependencies in in libraries and stuff, but it, it does have, you know, depending on your application, it could have configuration files or a variety of different, you know, files and directories that it needs around it. Uh, what Docker does and does so well is it packages up your application with all of its dependencies and files uh, into a container. And you, if you do it right, you'll use the same container in dev, in staging, and prod. Effectively, you carry your environment with you everywhere you go. So by, by its very nature, uh, if you're using Docker, you will have the exact same dev, staging, and production, and testing environments. And this eliminates so many of the challenges that come, uh, especially as we move to microservices and distributed architectures. Um, you know, the operational challenges to microservices were too high to make it a practical, uh, a practical solution. And with Docker, it, it takes away all of those challenges. And it makes it so that, you know, again, if it works on your laptop, it's going to work in production. And, uh, and you don't have to worry about all those challenges. And Docker does, does this masterfully well. Um, and yeah, so that's my pitch is um, if, you're, if you're a developer and you have to manage dependencies or any external environmental things, um, then do yourself a favor and get Docker because it's going to make your life so much easier. And, and that's why Docker's caught on so fast is in today's world, so many, so many places are running multiple languages and um, multiple environments, and uh, it's just a mess, and, and Docker solves it. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's really compelling. Uh, I think, uh, I think uh, we were talking, the company I used to work in, uh, we were talking about that, um, or we were using Vagrant for to virtualize yeah. our dev environment and it was and we were talking about we're, we're kind of discussing okay how, we're trying to understand what docker is and why it would be why people are so excited about it and why it would be more suitable or what how it could help us and uh ultimately for us it was not a good fit because the whole pr production environment was already set up and and it was set up by other company that we had to work with so there was nothing yeah. that we could change about that and in that case vagrant seemed to be the better choice because for docker to me it really seemed like you really have to be able to deploy it on all those different uh to to stage dev and prod like otherwise it doesn't really make uh a lot of sense right um yeah yeah so the big difference is vagrant um is more like a recipe in that it builds it for you. Mm -hmm. Whereas Docker, it's, um, it's, a, it's a container. It's the whole thing together. Yeah. Um, and, and Docker does have some scriptable elements to it, um, and, and some people use it that way entirely. Um, but I, for me, I kind of like the idea of it being the exact same, uh, yep. not having to depend on a script running successfully somewhere else. Um, so for your situation, it sounds like Vagrant, which is a great tool, is is a good fit. Mm. Uh, for a lot of people, they do have control over uh, of their you know, different environments. A lot of them are using cloud environments, um, you know, and and 
Azure and and Amazon and Rackspace and you know Joint and you know you you name it uh, Google App Engine uh, they all have great support for Docker mm. uh, so you know a lot of places um, uh, just Docker is a great fit because it's already supported where they're going uh, you know and so many people yeah. are hosting on on these different cloud platforms today um, but yeah I I I I think you're right in that. Um, Docker's one of Docker's biggest strengths is being able to run the same thing everywhere. Yeah. And if you have external constraints preventing that, then I don't think Docker's a bad fit. But uh, it, the the big advantage to doing it is is running everywhere. And the fact if you're already using Vagrant um, and it's already in place, I don't think you have a compelling reason to switch. Right. Uh, as as compelling as as most people do. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Anyway. So I'm not too familiar with with Docker. Um, beyond that, what you had just said that it's a container. How how can you, or how can I think of that? Is it just package up your your application and your dependencies, um, as in, for example, a Node? It would get all of your files or in PHP the same thing, or yeah. does it all also package up, let's say, the entire, you know, MySQL instance that is part of your application? So that it depends on how you do it. It could do either one. A container is just that. It's kind of an abstract container that you can put different things in. Um, and you know, so I'll, I'll kind of maybe answer it into something I wish happened more. I wish more open source. So I, I one of the challenges I had with Jekyll is it took me a few hours, more than two, to set up Jekyll the first time. And why is that? Well, I already had Ruby on my system, but it wasn't the right version of Ruby, and I had some of the wrong dependencies, and I had to upgrade all these different things manually. And I don't blame Jekyll for that. Um, but it was a big barrier to, to my adoption. Um, and, and it definitely kind of got me on the wrong foot there. Um, and, and this is, is someone who's, who knows Ruby pretty well. Um, but the, the, the whole idea that I needed to know the whole toolkit to be able to run an application, to me, just seems broken. Um, but like we, 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 we kind of accepted that years ago, that you needed to know how uh, language is written uh, and how the whole toolkit of language is, is used to be able to run it. Uh, we accepted that with PHP a long time ago and didn't look back. The reality is I shouldn't need to know anything about your 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 language to run your application. I don't know anything about, you know, my, my wife knows nothing about uh, Visual C++ and she uses our Windows machine just fine, right? I know nothing about it. I know more than I wish to know about Objective-C, but not very much. <laughs> and yet I can run Finder all the day long. So, the, you know, and I can install apps, Mac apps all the time. I don't need to know anything about Objective-C. Um, and I wish more people did this. I wish more people used Docker, especially for open source, to to work in. Because if you if you if you instead on your project said, um, hey, uh, instead of having to check out all of our dependencies and set up everything, and make sure you have all the right environment, here's a Docker uh, here's a Docker container or a Docker file, uh, which is Docker file is kind of the recipe that'll build a container for you. But here's a Docker container, and it's got it all set up. This is my, our Docker dev container. It has every, all the dependencies everything you need to set up 
just check it out, make your changes, and and just contribute it back. Um, it would save the whole world so much time. <laughs> like it would be so much better if open source could realize that that everything comes together. So so if I was shipping a my uh, a WordPress one <coughs> for development. I would totally bundle a MySQL instance in it because that would make a lot of sense. If I was deploying a WordPress uh, container to production, I would probably use multiple containers. I would probably have a container for MySQL of which I would run on maybe different machines from the containers that I ran uh, the MySQL web app on. Um, and, you know, and maybe not. But and I know you know one one kind of emerging trend is to have all the containers be the same, but run different processes within those containers, um, so that um, you know some of them you're kind of using as the MySQL one, other ones you're using as the as the WordPress one um, in, in that example. Um, but yeah, so so a Docker container you can do a lot of different things with it. Just think of it in some ways it's kind of like an ISO. Uh, plus running processes, uh, and you can have multiple running processes inside of it. Um, but it's not the easiest thing to convey, and I probably confuse more people than not. But um, yeah, the the, meta, the metaphor of thinking of it is like an, an image plus processes bundled together is a container is what helps me understand it better. Yeah, that does help because I, I just read sort of a, a high level you know overview of it, and that's <coughs> when they explained how you would. Because um, you know, in I guess Vagrant, it's the entire entire image. Everything is on there, and then they were talking about basically splitting it up, like you had just said, to put the various um, applications in different containers. Then that didn't make sense anymore to me, because now you're splitting it out, and you are, you know, you have to manage them independently. And and I guess you would introduce the danger of of getting out of sync or yeah, getting your dependencies messed up again. So yeah, so then the first level of containerization, uh, kind of the first wave of it was just the idea of using containers and to think of them as a way to distribute your applications and um, bundle your dependencies together. Um, the next wave of them, um, and what's really the exciting thing and all, most of the developments going into now is how to orchestrate those because single container applications are less and less common, especially in production. And so what we're seeing is a bunch of exciting projects coming from a variety of different vendors. Docker, we have, um, we have Compose and Swarm and Machine, which come together to provide our orchestration layer. There's uh, Google has the Kubernetes project, which is based on Borg, which was their internal orchestration tool. Uh, Cloud Foundry has their own project um, to do this, um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, players in this space. Um, uh, I think Joint's working on something. All, all of them around the same idea of, of having orchestration for containers. Uh, lots of innovation happening here, um, you know. And it's it's going to be interesting to see which solutions um, get adopted by the enterprise, which solutions get adopted by developers, if those are different, um, you know, and, and kind of where they all go. But, um, you know, and, and Vagrant is a bit of an orchestration tool as well, but not for containers. Um, 
and and so we kind of see that that's the emergence and, and really what's going to guide the industry over the next few years um, is what happens in this in this space of orchestration. Is the reason that they're going into separate containers in in production is that a performance thing or is that what's the reason behind that? Oh, it's usually a. Um, there's a few different ways. Uh, some of the applications that I've seen, like think of a uh, think of a more complicated application than WordPress. So I know you know one of our vendors, um, like a service based one. So they have a bunch of different services which are all connected together. Uh, the old stuff is written in Ruby. The new stuff is written in Node, and the new new stuff is written in Go. Um, and those are in different containers. Um, and they should be in different containers. Um, each of them have their own persistence layers, sometimes multiple persistence layers. Sometimes they're running Redis and you know, RethinkDB. Sometimes they're running Mongo. Sometimes they're running MySQL or Postgres. Um, and you're, you're generally going to want to have different containers for these different, um, I guess, roles that are happening within your application. But applications are changing. They're getting more distributed. They're getting more diverse. the The idea of a lamp stack now just seems so simplistic, mm-hmm. uh, because people don't don't run like that anymore. They're just applications have grown more complex. Tools have grown more specialized, and so you're you know you're you're going to want to have different containers, and they're going to want to run in different places. Uh, one of the advantages of containers and the, the and kind of the promise of these orchestration tools is is that they can give you higher utilization of your cluster by balancing out where the containers live. You, you're going to have lots of containers running the same, you know, running the same service. You might have you know hundreds of of Ruby you know based authorization. Services containers running, um, and by distributing them across the cluster, it gives you better high availability as well. And this is one of the things the orchestration tools. Uh, the promise of them is is higher utilization, higher availability. That, that they're intelligent enough to know when a certain container might have crashed to restart it over here on a different node, and to make sure that you know, or if if this particular type of container. Is getting hit pretty heavy uh, with utilization to spin up more of them um, and to distribute them across your cluster a little more efficiently. Um, because the idea of you know VMs, we we kind of do this with VMs, and the VM approach does this to some degree, but VMs take minutes to spin up, um, and once you allocate those resources, they're pretty fixed. Um, they're they're not very dynamic at all. Whereas with containers. Um, you can, it takes seconds to spin up a new container. And you can uh, dynamically change the allocation of a container to use, you know, it might be using a quarter of the CPU and now it's using three CPUs. And you might have allocated to it uh, a gig of RAM, and, but you can see that it needs more RAM and there's space on the machine it's on. You can allocate more to it. Uh, you can even reduce allocation. Um, and balance it out. Now that kind of management um, is it, great that you could do it and that you have that fine control, but it, it's, it would, be, would require too much 
uh, for a human to do if you want good utilization. Yeah, you and need that, help. That's why the orchestration tools are key to this is, is you really you can do it. Right? With these tools, it's actually possible to have really high utilization, 90 plus percent utilization. Uh, whereas in the enterprise today, most people with VMs treat them like they treated machines, which is, you know, at best, you're getting two thirds utilization. Um, and often you're getting even less than that because the VMs need, you know, to be at max, usually two thirds. And then the machines they're on often need to be at max two thirds. So you end up getting closer, you know, industry-wide, we, we're generally closer to 50-60% utilization than, than 90-100. And with containers, the, the, there's a, the promise of 90-plus of percent utilization uh, is possible, um, which drives server costs down, uh, you know, hosting costs down dramatically. Um, but, and even, you know, burst allocation um, is something, you know, right now you over-allocate because of burst, and everyone does it. And the fact is, is that you can't spin up VMs fast enough to really handle burst properly. So you, over always, you always over-allocate. And with containers, you actually can spin them up fast enough to, uh, to handle bursts. And you can shut them down fast enough to react well to burst. So there's much more dynamic in your ability to be able to respond to how your application is running. Uh, but again, it, it just requires tooling to do that. And all the tools we have right now are, are young. They're, they're all, um, they all show the promise of being able to do this, but I think um, uh, you know, kind of uh, glimpses of what the future can hold. But um, you know, because we're playing with such a different uh, foundational technology than we ever before, the orchestration tools from before kind of to be rethought how they work with things, and uh, and and we're working on it, and, and and not just Docker, but the whole industry is. Um, and we recently joined uh, as a founding member of uh, the CNCF, which is the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is a, a, a really a working group to kind of talk through these and trying to build some collaboration. Um, not not really looking for consensus yet. We really want innovation in this space to happen, but but if we can collaborate on things, I think that better solutions will emerge across the industry. And so, I'm I'm really happy the industry did this, um, and you know we're happy to be a founding member and, and one of the driving forces behind it. Yeah, that sounds exciting. It seems like there's a lot of incentive to do that because I I wasn't um, I've you know haven't. Looked at this in detail, but this sounds very, very intriguing. So, thanks it, for that explanation. It's interesting, and, yeah. and you're welcome. I'm, uh, yeah. yeah, it's 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 been fun. I I think this is really uh, the space where more. I haven't seen this much innovation in the industry in my whole career. I, I think we're seeing more right now than than ever before in a really compact amount of time. Yeah. And uh, you know, the internet brought similar. <clears throat> when the internet came, everything changed to be internet ready. Apple named everything i something. Uh, you know, Microsoft uh, bundled Internet Explorer and and with Windows and and you know the innovation was just rapid, changing to adapt to this technology, and and I think we're on the cusp of uh, of of a similarly disruptive technology, one that won't touch the end users as much, but in in uh, you know it won't Apple won't be calling products container something, 
in the future, but it will <laughs> will change the developers' yeah. world just as much. Yeah. Very cool stuff, Khalil. Uh, should we do picks then? Yeah. All right. Uh, <coughs> want me to start off? Go ahead. Yes. Okay. So my picks today are uh, first of all, I'm picking Angular JSDE, which is uh, um, a company in Germany. They do like Angular JS consulting and they also do product development and uh, are pretty active in the community. And we at the company that I'm working at, we had one of those guys over to um, to give us a little course on Angular JS. Even though there were lots lots of us already knew the framework, it was really good to get this kind of deep insight, and it was really awesome to have him there. It was his name is Robin Böhm, and uh, it was really. Uh, uh, yeah, he he really has very deep knowledge about the framework, especially version one dot x, and um, uh, it was really good to to get a lot of background information about the interiors of Angular JS. So that uh, of Angular JS. So that so that's definitely a big big up. Um, then the second pick for me is <clears throat> the Karlsruhe JS meetup. So we had a meetup uh, last night. In Karlsruhe, and uh, there was there were like were like 20, 12, 13 people, something like that, and it was really really enjoyable. It was very cool, and uh, yeah, so it's it's really fun to organize this uh, Karlsruhe JS, and it's always a very pleasant experience uh, with the people of that community. So that was really really awesome. Um, the third pick is. Uh, uh, a podcast that I'm listening to since a while, um, since a long time actually. It's called This Week in Startups, and it's uh, it's it's uh, they're like at f- episode 500 something, and it's a uh, very interesting. So it's running since years, and they've always had uh, interesting people, uh, founders, people that that are in the industry longer, VCs, uh, VC guys. Um, journalists that have something to say on the topics and with um, very interesting interviews over the years. And I really, yeah, I never picked that uh, podcast yet. So I just wanted to do that because I really, really enjoy it. And um, my music pick is is Sikik. So Sikik is a guy who is, he's a musician from Toronto. And I I found him, I discovered him on Vine because when Vine launched, I I, I actually used it regularly to to look, to to kind of watch this this kind of ecosystem explode and the creativity kind of explode and kind of the creativity that was native to that platform. And it was very entertaining. Uh, some of it was really uh, not entertaining, also. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you follow, you know, a bunch of people, if you, if you figure out who to follow, and then it's it can be very entertaining. And Sikik was one of those guys, and he kind of started. Um, he started out on Vine, and what was interesting, I, I had co- contact with him briefly over briefly over WhatsApp because my wife is also in music and. We were kind of considering working with him and asking him, like you know, if what what that would entail and stuff. And and he was telling me his his kind of his story. So he was basically in a boy group kind of band, and because his shtick is that he always has a mask on, you don't see his face, 
and it's kind of uh, has a little dark vibe and stuff. And he basically said that he has to do that because he was still under contract with his boy group thing that he <laughs> <laughs> that he didn't really want to do anymore and and he still so the contract was kind of running out and then and he was already building up this new persona this new image called sick kick where he would be where he's producing himself and also uh singing and uh so yeah so i find found out about him like uh last year or the year before or something like that and uh, there was a few tracks where it was really i was very impressed by and um yeah and just recently i found this video where he is basically what he's doing it's called sickic who needs keyboards anyway and it's a video where he gets into a car and it's it's really well shot and um it's very very simple he gets into a car and then he starts like banging on you know uh the stir steering wheel and and honking the horn and stuff like that and he has the blinkers going and stuff like that. and he uses all that stuff as percussion and then sings over that stuff and it's it's somehow they did a good job you know taking the audio of his voice and and also the percussion that he's doing um and it's pretty amazing he's going through a bunch of tracks just a cappella while he's he's hitting on the car insides there and um and he's going through different genres and stuff like that. So that's really impressive. So that's my music pick. I have to check that out. <clears throat> Sounds interesting. <laughs> so uh, my first pick is uh, Google Inbox. Um, it's a new product by Google. I have found myself using um, my email client as my to-do list, or at least trying to. Um, so essentially when I have something to do, I leave that email as unread, <laughs> so I am reminded to deal with it. And Google Inbox um, is uh, is a lot better than trying to do that. At least you can you can basically snooze emails. You can also set reminders directly in your inbox to come back at any time to remind you of something. And it's just um, yeah, I found it uh, convenient to uh, to work at least much much better than just using your inbox as your, your to-do list. So um, that's working quite well for me. Then my second pick is uh, Ember Weekend. That's a podcast. Um, it's obviously 100% um, about Ember. And the two hosts, Chase McCarthy and Jonathan Jackson, I think they do just a, a really nice job to keep it short and sweet and uh, with uh, very, very good content. And I coincidentally won a, um, a T-shirt from them, <laughs> so that was really cool. But uh, yeah, I just like that podcast. Would highly recommend it to Ember developers. Um, got some good information in there. And uh, my third pick, while it's the same as yours, uh, it's also Karlsruhe.js. I just had a wonderful time there yesterday, simply hanging out and relaxing and talking about nerdy things with uh, with a bunch of like-minded people. It was really really cool. Um, and my music pick is. Uh, a really old song. It's uh, something I, probably for a long time was my favorite song. I mean, nowadays you don't have that anymore. But I heard this, I can't remember, it's at the doctor's office or maybe in a grocery store or something. It's Enjoy the Silence by Depeche Mode. And I just went home and I, I, I watched the video again on YouTube and it's it's hilarious. I mean, it's this cheesy, grainy video style that they did in the 80s where the band is standing there and looking all serious and barely moving and then the rest of the movie is basically the this guy dressed up as a king walking through 
I don't know, the mountains or whatever. It makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was fun to watch again. So <laughs> those are my picks. How about you, Steve? All right. So I have a few picks today. Um, mine are a little different from yours, but um, that's good. Variety is good. Um, so for, for me, uh, the first pick is actually a 20-year-old video game, um, which is uh, one of the most popular games of all time, but surprisingly, a lot of people have never played this part of it, which is The Legend of Zelda for the 8-bit Nintendo. Um, was, for me, uh, uh, it changed my life. It, it, it really is probably, probably where I should have started my story, because that's <laughs> what really got me interested in computers in the first place. Um, but I found that there's uh, the first quest of Zelda, which most people have beaten, uh, or a lot of people that have played it have beaten. Um, but most people uh, have not played the second quest of Zelda, uh, which is once you've beaten the game, the game restarts, and all of the dungeons are in different places, and the puzzles are, are different, and everything's considerably harder. And I, um, a few months ago, I decided that I was going to try and play through this uh, the second quest, uh, without the aid of like maps or internet or, or anything, um, and just really immerse myself in kind of the experience. And it has been fantastic. It is so nice to play a video game that doesn't try and hold your hand. Uh, you know, li nowadays Zelda games have like three hours of introducing you to the game. <laughs> uh, whereas the first game, you know, if you knew what you're doing, you could beat it in three hours. Um, and, uh, yeah, to just be lost in a world and try and explore and find your way through it and to die a bunch. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I died in a Zelda game, and with this one, I, I, it's, it's, it's so hard. It's so awesome to, have a, a, to die again in video games. Um, so th that's my first pick, um, and I strongly encourage you to, to dust out your NES, uh, blow off the cartridge, your gold cartridge, put it in, or, or just use an emulator or something. But... Um, and so my second pick is an audiobook that I recently listened to that I, I really loved. Um, and it's, uh, it's called, I must say my life is a humble comedy legend, uh, by Martin Short, who, uh, famously is part of SCTV and then SNL and has had uh, a long career of uh, film and TV. Um, and I've, I, I like, I like autobiographies anyway autobiographies. I like audio autobiographies even more. And with someone like Martin Short, he didn't just read his book, he acted it out. Um, and it brought it to life. Um, and it was, it was just fascinating to kind of hear his take on life and how he's uh, survived uh, his career. He had great tips, uh, which I've, uh, is, is like one of the rare books. I, I listened to the audio book and then I went and bought the, uh, the written word book uh, because there were so many things in it that I thought I could use in my life. Um, that I uh, yeah just enjoyed it, learned from it. Uh, I laughed, I cried. Uh, what more could you ask for from a book? Um, <laughs> and the next one is a movie that I. It, it's one of my favorite movies, and it's a movie that um, is not as popular. Um, and it it came out in 2010, and it's an animated movie called Batman Under the Red Hood. Um, and anyone who knows me knows I, 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 
always been a comic book fan and really enjoyed the Batman series. Um, and this, for me, I think is, uh, it's not one you're going to want to watch with your kids. It's, uh, it's a pretty violent um, cartoon, um, but it is fantastic. I think it's probably the best superhero uh, movie I've, I've ever seen. And, and I was a huge fan of, of The Dark Knight and a lot of the Marvel movies, and I think this is, has a better story than any of them. Hmm. Um, just fantastic acting. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, if you, if you like uh, superheroes... And you like dark, twisted uh, plots and um, uh, and animation? You, you, it's a it's a good movie. So that's Batman Under the Red Hood. Um, and my musical pick is um, it speaks more to me uh, and who I am. Um, I, I grew up skateboarding, listening to punk rock, and I really enjoyed. Uh, I was in high school when the third wave of ska came over. Um, or emerged, and one of my favorite bands uh, at the time was called Less Than Jake. Um, as my wife says, I've never grown up. <laughs> I still listen to punk rock. It's, I listen to you know classical and and jazz and and a lot of other things, but I, I still like punk more than anything else. Um, and uh, I for my I just uh, turned thirty six, so for my birthday I asked. I, I was like, all I want to do is go to a, a Less Than Jake show. Um, and so we got to see Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish um, uh, with, uh, with my wife and some friends. And um, it, was, it was awesome to see that we were about the average age of people in the audience. <laughs> um, and that, yes, our, you know, the, the band that we listened to 20 years ago um, and we go to the concerts when we were teenagers uh, is the same, but they're old like us now. And... Um, and anyway, they, they have one album that uh, came out oh, a good 10 years ago, but um, I think is just fantastic and, and probably, uh, I think, their, their best album. Uh, and it's called Anthem. So the band is Less Than Jake, and, and you, know, you can Google them on, on YouTube. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I've been listening to it uh, pretty much on, on repeat for the last month. And... Uh, yeah, my wife, uh, we got in the car yesterday, and she, uh, I said, can I DJ? She goes, yes, anything but punk. <laughs> so uh, she's, she's readily sick of it now. But um, yeah, so those are my picks. Very cool. And uh, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or uh, follow you on Twitter, I guess? So I'm SPF13 everywhere. What SPF13.com, on Twitter, GitHub, uh, ev- everywhere. What does that signify, that name? Um, so it's my, it, it, it stands for a lot of things, but to me it stands for my initials. Um, okay. That's my, my name. Um, and then 13, um, my favorite number is 5, and I tried to get SPF 5, but uh, that web, that dot com was taken. And so I thought, well, what's another number that's not as likely to be taken and still is a short domain name and a short username? Hmm. Um, and 13 is an unlucky number, but I've always, I don't believe in superstition. And besides, I'm Italian, and 13 is a lucky number in Italy. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but it's good because a lot of places actually have restrictions of five characters or, or less for, mm-hmm. for usernames anyway. So it was, uh, it was uh, yeah, Th- there's not a lot of significance behind, I mean, there's some, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just really my initials and, and a number. 
but easy to remember, hopefully. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. This was really a pleasure and highly, highly interesting. So many different topics. That was fantastic. Thanks again. All right. Hey, thank you guys very much, and I uh, really enjoyed it myself. All right. Cool. Um, I'm Henning Glattergotz, and you can find me on Twitter at hglattergotz. And I want to thank everybody for listening. You can find all the show notes for this episode on descriptive.audio. If you have any feedback or guest requests, uh, hit us up on Twitter at descriptivepod or join us in the descriptive Slack chat. The link for that is also on the website. That's it. Steve, thanks again. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.